If everyone's trying to buy high yield properties right now, by nature, that's going to push up the price of the high yield properties, which in nature makes them lower yield. Welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase, where we help you unpack the tactics, tools, and strategies to build wealth and live a life by design. And today's episode is all about real estate investing, specifically real estate investing in Australia. And this episode was originally recorded on the Property and Investing podcast, which is a great show. I highly recommend you check it out. Head to propertyandinvesting.com to do that. And we really dig into a lot of different things today, specifically what's changed in the Australian real estate investing landscape, how you as an investor can change your strategy to match the times which is critically important because a lot of investors, when the environment changes, they don't change, which means they get left behind. We talk about that. We talk about things like modern portfolio theory. We really get deep into some different ways to think in order to become more successful in real estate investing in Australia as we move forward through 2023 and beyond. So I love it. It's really... I'm in my element talking about this kind of stuff. Um, It's complex. It's technical. It's digestible. There's lots of analogies. It's super fun. I had a great time doing it. I'm confident you're going to get a lot of value out of this too. So uh, let's get stuck right into it. But before we do, make sure you hit the subscribe button and make sure you share this with a friend, family member or loved one, particularly if they're interested in real estate investing. And without any further ado, let's get right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Goose. I'm the CEO of Dashdot. We are one of Australia's fastest growing companies. We recently uh, got the 14th, we were voted the 14th fastest growing technology company in Australia. But what we do at the core is we are Australia's leading property portfolio growth partners. And over the last four years, we've developed a unique approach to identifying the right property, right place, right time, and then also helping our clients to scale their property portfolio. So we've got a technology-driven approach, which has got a very different methodology. And that fundamentally, what we do is not buy houses and stuff like a lot of people out there. Fundamentally, what we do is we work with our clients to help systematically build a prolific and profitable property portfolio. So they can achieve their, their, their goals, their financial freedom goals, and all of that kind of stuff significantly faster and with significantly less risk. That's the that's at the crux of what we're doing. That was the Peter Piper pick your pick your pick your pick. How many P's were in that? <laughs> profitable property. Prolific, port- profitable yeah, property portfolio. I got no chance. I got nothing. <laughs> that's what everyone wants. Everyone wants a prolific, profitable I'm, property portfolio. I'm, I love it. I'm, I feel like that's what I have. Now that you put words you do. together. Like you are matches. that shining example. Just, just, you have a what, Charlie? <laughs> be careful be careful what comes out you've got what charlie i've got a poof yeah. houses yeah. <laughs> houses powerhouses yeah. now goose we brought you onto the show uh this time because what mm. i find is that the property space can be very confusing very very confusing there is a lot of different sources of media some good some bad but then there's also a lot of opinions. And then to take even further, we throw in biases and things that work for certain people and not to others, which I think make this landscape very, very difficult to comprehend for ourselves. And even in the last 12 months, the amount of times I have flip-flopped between things or considered different things in such a changing environment has been heavily confusing for myself. Now, for mm. someone that is actually has boots on the ground, someone who has a, an immense amount of data, and is working with so many people in this industry and actually buying property. What's changed in 2023? Where are we at today from your perspective? You know, what's really interesting uh, about that question is um, simultaneously nothing and lots of things. So the fundamental drivers of the Australian property market haven't actually significantly changed in the last 12 months. Um, What has changed more than anything is consumer sentiment. 
And one thing that I've been banging the drum on for a couple of years now is that psychographics drive property markets far more than things like economics and demographics. Um, now, within that, there's a context that is that needs to be understood that there are 15,264 towns and suburbs in Australia, and every single one of them operates uniquely differently. And in fact, you can go down to a smaller and more granular level than that to even see how within suburbs, within tiny pockets of suburbs, they behave differently. And so um, despite the overarching media narrative that says, um, you know, firstly, there was a boom and then there's a property market crash, those two things aren't absolutely true. They're true. They can be generally true, but not absolutely true. And so what I see changing in 2023 versus 2022 is actually the shift in consumer sentiment. Because one of the hardest things for people to get their heads around... Now, what, one of the... Uh, a, a very confusing thing for most people to understand is that interest rates aren't specifically the um, biggest driver of property market price movements. However, consumer sentiment does have a big, big role. And so in last year, as um, interest rates started to rise at the fastest rate that risen for, in most people's adult life, um, it was a, a, bit of a, a bit of a shock. You know, there was a lot of sticker shock and a lot of concern, a lot of uncertainty. And so what that caused, that caused a slowdown in buying behavior. Some markets are more affected by that kind of stuff than others. Um, but broadly speaking, I think we're going to see some normalization coming back into the market in 2023. I think that we are going to see uh, more growth in more locations. And the caveat that I'll put on that is that even in the last 12 months, lots of locations have been growing. Um, so the narrative that, you know, all property, all suburbs have been going down, that's not true. Um, but I think there's going to be, generally speaking, more growth in more locations um, in 2023. And I think we're going to see a, con- a return of consumer sentiment. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting on that one? I we In a previous episode, we actually looked at the core logic data and I think overall property was down 5% or 5.2. 5.9 or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, somewhere in that region. So if you looked at mm-hmm. the holistic data, that was the case. But my individual portfolio was actually up closer to 10. So yep. when we did the valuations yep. and went through it, it was like there's such a dispersion in that data. Um, which was really fascinating. Now, that's not to say certain properties in my portfolio didn't go down a little bit. They did. But there was clearly even some that were true outliers. We had one go near 15% for the year. Yeah. The the thing even within that, though, that you've got to understand, Charlie, is that that'll be based on bank valuations. And uh, in my experience, um, bank valuations are highly spurious at best. And so I personally have had properties um, which I very clearly understood the value of, and we've got very sophisticated methods to to ascertain that. And I had a valuer undervalue it by um, 10%, lower, they, they valued it 10% lower than what we thought market value was. I challenged them on that. They came back and then they dropped it another 10% and I challenged them again and then they realized they were completely wrong and then revalued it at the, at the price. So the, even... Even the valuation methods or the independent valuers that can be used in banks, you say, you say you had a property that went down in value, that could have actually just been derived by the individual sentiment of the valuer or person in charge of that specific valuation case. And so there's there's a lot more to market dynamics and, and price formation in the market than just getting a bank valuation. Although they can be a great metric, particularly when you're trying to get a loan and trying to get equity out. <laughs> Can I ask a question on that? My understanding of bank valuations is that the Mm. bank valuation is based on the idea if they had to sell it today. It's like almost a fire sale approach to it to a degree. They're not going to be optimistic. They're like by nature being conservative because if the bank's taking on this risk, they want to be able to like clear that property quickly. Is that your finding and understanding also? I can't comment on that specifically because I don't know if that is true or not. But what I would say, if that is the thesis, is that um, you and I could stand next to a house 
and we could both speculate if we had to sell this today, what would we sell it for? And we could come up with two different numbers. Um, and so broadly speaking, um, I don't think the value, I think there, I think there's a lot of gaps um, that can be had there because I mean, you can get different values who will give you different valuations on the same property. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to rag on uh, value, valuers or anything like that. I think, I think great. I mean, there's a great skill set there. Um, it's just one of those things that there's, there's more, there's more to it than that, you know, and uh, often, often value is in the eye of the beholder and then there's intrinsic value and there's like loads of different metrics that need to go into it as well. So completely right every house is unique it's not the same item as they are on a street mm. and even then there's little sneaky dynamics that i think can weight this as well like school zones for example can often be like underappreciated is my finding as well bringing this back to the topic at hand though you mentioned that like sentiment has been a really big driver is there any other things that you're particularly looking at that are going to be in your view different in 2023 um different in 2023 um look i don't know about let me kind of like circle back on that if we talk about the property market, um, not specifically, um, but if we talk about the um, economic landscape and property uh, investment strategies, then yes, there are differences. So we're not. To, so just to expand on that, do, what do I think is going to be different in the property market? Not a, not a whole lot. You know, I think that I think that regional markets are still going to perform quite strongly because of the general uh, affordability ratio, particularly as the cost of living has gone up. That actually drives more people now that they're technology enabled to be able to work from. Many people have much more work flexibility to be able to work from anywhere or part time or full time or whatever to be able to, to. So they have the ability to live further away from their primary place of work, which gives them the ability to seek out more affordable, um, uh, more affordable accommodation and better lifestyle. That's that fundamentally drives people movement, and so I think regionals are generally going to perform well because, like, because of that, or that's going to be a contributing factor. There's also many other reasons, like decentralization of infrastructure projects to the regions. I like the regional growth play. Like that hasn't, that's not something that gets switched on or off. Um, in the course of a year. So I think there's probably still a few more years to go uh, in terms of that front. You know, I think um, the capital city markets, whilst they definitely do represent some buying opportunities right now for certain investors, uh, I think if you look at what drives uh, buying capabilities in capital city markets, there's there's an affordability piece there, which is getting squeezed with um, higher interest rates and also higher cost of living. And so I think that there's probably still like a bit of softness in those markets. I wouldn't necessarily be jumping into those markets. Don't get me wrong. If I if I had um, very large sums of liquid cash um, that I could throw around, yeah, I probably would go and buy opportunistically some properties if, if cash wasn't a consideration and cash flow wasn't a consideration. There's opportunities there, but for the average investor, I don't necessarily think that's um, a good play coming through. But I really think diversification um, and how people think about their portfolio structure is going to be the defining characteristic of who is successful in 2023 um, versus who wakes up in 2024 and wishes they'd done something. Deep. I've had some interesting experiences myself in the last little run. We actually attempted to uh, purchase a unit block. We were looking at it and working with yourself, Goose, on that to uh, see mm. if it was possible. And I was just mind blown, absolutely mind blown in the change of environment, particularly access to finance and at what rates. It really, really like um, just set me on a different path of going, well, things have changed on that landscape, particularly for me and my circumstances. I'm vi I then had a conversation with you and you said this is actually fairly common with what you're seeing with other people as well. In the idea that that is happening and market conditions have changed to a degree with what you're talking about here, how are you looking at adapting? You've hinted on diversifications and other things. 
how does one adapt to this environment so they don't end up in that position of, well, couldn't do anything in 2023 or potentially sat to the sidelines because they just weren't aware? Yeah, well, I think I think it really comes down to mindset, right? Because um, fundamentally, there's only ever three constraints in building a property portfolio, right? Um, there's the constraints of access to capital, access to cash flow, or access to borrowing capacity. They're the three constraints. And so, if you apply the theory of constraints to your portfolio to identify what um, what element of those three things is missing that is stopping you from progressing your portfolio, you can then identify what type of asset may need to be re- may need to be acquired in order to or acquired or um, or let go, sold in order to unblock the constraint that you've got in your portfolio. Because the 99% of property investors never achieve the goal that they want. 99% never achieve uh, the financial freedom that they're after. It's crazy, right? You know, 70, 90% never get past two, two properties, but only 1% actually ever get to, you know, the degree of, you know, financial affluence and freedom they expect from their property portfolio. And the reason, the reason for that is because they get stuck. And so, uh, you know, breaking that down, if you can avoid getting stuck, if you can continue to uh, to grow your property portfolio, you'll achieve your goals. It's that simple. Just don't get stuck. So then, applying the theory of constraints, you can then identify what do you need more of and what do you what do you need less of. So then, this allows you to approach your portfolio composition in a different uh, in a different way. And so, rather than saying should I buy a property in 2023, it's a question of saying how could I buy a property in 2023. Or if I were to buy a property in 2023, what characteristics would it need to have in order to make sure that I didn't create a bottleneck in my portfolio that would prevent me from moving forward or could cause, you know, a second order consequence that I that I don't like? And this is this is the biggest issue that I see with, with property investors is they don't think through what the second order consequences are. They go, I'll buy a house and see what happens. And then when they see what happens, it's like roadblock. And it's like, well, you shouldn't have bought that house. And if you just spent some time to think about what happens immediately after you settle on that property, what does that mean? And they literally just build constraints into their own portfolio and then they've got to try and untangle that mess. So a little bit of you know process design helps. I reckon there's there has to be a fourth layer to that though. Like whether it's sentiment, confidence or something like that. So one of the things that for me, second half of twenty twenty two, I was looking to essentially rebuild my confidence going, wait, wait, how do I play this now? Um, personally I go, well, interest rates are a bit higher. Personally, I'm like, well, maybe the opportunity is slightly different. And so I had to go and act. My, my theory of constraints, my very first constraint was myself and actually going, well, everything's saying that the doom and gloom is there. Don't buy anything. Like, property price is going to tank. Like, everything. Even my dad's saying it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is horrific. And so that was my first constraint was going, well, hang on. How do I get over that hurdle? <laughs> and then the other ones. Um, is that a layer that kind of comes into it, which is because people might have access to capital, people might have access to cash flow, people might have mm. um, access to, to borrowing, but the problem is that they're just shot in the sense that the world's burning around. Trigger shy. Tr- completely. And so the theory of constraints for them is actually the confidence in going, I'm bucking the trend here, Goose. Like I'm the one yep. escaping the pack. <laughs> Uh, usually, in a pack mentality, I'm the one that's going to get killed. Like, yeah, why, it's why only I'm... your, uh, you know, future depending on it here. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know like you uh, buy the bong house, you're out, right? Totally. You're absolutely out, bankrupt. Totally. Yeah, no, you're is 100% it... correct, which, which, is why, which is exactly why I said, like, it first comes down to asking the question, not 
um, should I, but it's, but it's how, how do I, or if I was going to, what would that look like? I mean, it depends on obviously multitude of things. And sometimes it is going to make sense to do, to focus on, um, you know, some other aspect uh, of your life. And I mean, you know, transparently uh, right now, you know, you know, I'm focusing on, on some um, business interests and stuff like that right now. So there's, there's reasons where you might say, Hey, at this moment, I am not suddenly going to go and spontaneously buy a house. That being said, um, understanding what that pathway looks like strategically is still really, really important, right? And so the mindset piece is, is, is you know, is, is tremendous. Working through that, though, you know, you've got to actually work out, like, why am I even investing? Like, that kind of goes back down to a, a, a basal element. And then understanding, okay, well, what are, what are the, the various resources that I've got at my disposal to be able to help me continue to move forward? And you might be able to find that, that it's a differentiation of um, capital allocation or a differentiation of um, perspective that is going to give you that capability to move forward. Most people who get stuck in life, and I don't care whether it's like a health journey, a business journey, a property journey, anything like that, it's usually just a perspective shift that is required. And so I would suggest... Um, that if the constraint is you, then that's an opportunity to look inwards, not outwards. It's not the property market that actually has an issue. It's actually the individual that has an issue. And so then you get to ask yourself, okay, well, what is it that I'm afraid of? And if I was afraid of that, what what could I do to protect myself from that downside risk? Or how could I get comfortable with that risk? And there's, But that's, that comes down to internal work. You mentioned something there, Goose, that I want to grab. And I love that point. You mentioned that in your own experience, you've shifted to business focus, which is mm. potentially income focus from there. I'm really fascinated why this doesn't come up for more property investors, because it seems mm. to me that a strategy change might be earning more. Like it may not be swapping from houses to commercial. It might actually mm. be going, well, no, no, the strategy still works. We just need to be able to bring more income into this business to unlock, whether yep. it's borrowing power, deposits or whatever it is. What do you, so you've mentioned for yourself there, is it common for people to kind of neglect the income side? Are you seeing that across the investors you work with where they have a fixed mentality around what they can make? That is very, very true, right? And um, to the degree that you can free your mind from the, from the constraints of how people tell you you should live, that will be the degree to which you could be more successful. In fact, I remember uh, reading an email from yourself, Charlie, not too long ago, talking about how uh, you were on your business journey early on and you had a side hustle, but then because you wanted to do all these other things like play golf and do all this kind of stuff, you weren't actually really leaning into your side hustle, therefore it wasn't really making any money and you just had to make a decision to commit to a certain thing. Now, um, that... That, that idea applies like, sure, maybe you could, maybe your boss, if you're an income based, empl- uh, uh, you know, an income earning employee, maybe your boss or your employer isn't going to be up for giving you a raise. Okay. Does that mean that that is literally your only way of deriving a source of income if you need to change the income side of the equation? No, it is not. We live in a very digital economy. You can, there are lots of things that you could do to shift the, um, the income side of the equation. There's also lots of things you can do from a property strategy perspective to shift the income side of the equation or to shift the um, debt side of the equation. So there's like a lot of stuff you can think about from that. What, just an analogy that I want to kind of throw in the mix, which I think is a thread that is really worth pulling on, is that you know, imagine that all, we're all property investors and we're all on a racetrack, right? And over the last few years, everyone's been careening down the straight, foot to the floor, going as fast as they can, riding high on the straight line of low interest rates and high liquidity with cash sloshing around in the economy, low unemployment. Yeah, yeah. Never- that sounds great. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. And everyone's just been hooning. Everyone's been going as fast as they can. Now, when you're on the straights, 
realistically, whenever you're in a race like that, the only thing that's going to differentiate who goes faster on the straights is who's got a better vehicle. Now, in the context of that, in the vehicle of you, that would be who's got better access to capital, who's got more liquid cash reserves, who's got a bit larger borrowing capacity, all of that kind of stuff. That's the thing that will dictate how fast you go. If you've got not much money and not much borrowing capacity, then your car is going to go slower on the straight than someone who's got more cash and more borrowing capacity and more, and more appetite for it, right? But Barring that, everyone's been able to go as fast as possible careening down these straights. Now, what has happened is the racetrack has entered into another phase. We've gone from the straights and now we've now entered, in, entered in, into the chicanes, into the, into the turns. But here's the thing. The, the winners of the races aren't decided on the straights. They're decided in the, curve, in, the, in, the, in the bendy sections because that's where skill and strategy matters more than the vehicle that you've got. That's where the game is won. And so what's happening with a lot of investors is they've jumped on, they've started the car, they've started driving on the straight. They're like, Yahoo, racing's easy. I'm just racing down a straight. It's all straight lines. You just point and shoot. You just put your foot to the pedal and hang on to, hang on to the steering wheel and off we go. Now they've arrived at the corners, the winding section of the track, and they're going, huh? I don't know what this is. I don't know how to behave in this environment. What does this mean? Should I turn hard? Should I turn slow? Should I accelerate? Should I brake? I don't know. And so there's a lot of confusion. Some people are trying to act as though they're still on the straight and they go off track. Some people are saying, I don't know what corners are and they're just stopping. And both of those two things are going to mean that you lose the race. And the the investors who are most able to manipulate their own thinking to strategically adapt to the environment and navigate those corners are the ones that are going to win. And the thing about racetracks is they usually come back around and you end up back on the straight. And so if you end up on the straight further ahead than everyone else, you're going to go faster and you're going to win the race. And this is kind of where we're at. And I just see this this idea that it's kind of like we've approached some cataclysmic event. We, we haven't, you know, like interest rates are most likely going to the rate rises will slow down, if not stop, if not reverse this year. That is the most likely scenario that is going to happen. Um, that is going to bring a return to consumer sentiment. We've still got record, record low unemployment. There's still a lot of stuff going for it, but everyone's kind of seeing this obstacle and getting in their own way. Now, that being said, and I promise I'll shut up and let you get a word in edgeways in a second. That being said, <laughs> the environment... The environment is different, right? The environment is different to 12 months ago to, to 24 months ago. And what, what I mean by that specifically is your ability to derive cash flow from assets has fundamentally changed right now compared to a couple of years ago. So, you know what? I'm just going to keep going and you guys can just interject if you want to no, get, keep get going. in somewhere. And if you can just shoot one thing I would love for you to bring into this. You've described like the analogy I like a lot here. I really do. That describes my feeling. I feel like I've been on the straight. I get the game. Now the corners have come up and the things that used to work don't work. Right? It's not yep. the same at all. It's like I find myself in these uncharted territories. Not that I can't see this, but like I, I question, let's just go slow and wait for the next straight. Like, or do yep. I learn, develop new skills or work out what these corners are? So I'd just love if you could describe what the corners are in this analogy or things and then go into this cash flow component because I think they're, they're kind of tied. Because the I way that my, ha- my racehorse was, like, second half of last year, I was coming up to the corner and I just fucking stopped. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, stop, horsey. What do you mean like, 8% yeah. brakes? <laughs> like, brakes. I'm like, do I, I'm like, do I want to turn yeah. the corner at all? Like, and I'm like, nah, maybe. Yeah, so, so yes, the, cor- the, cor- the, the corners, 
Well, the, cor- the corners are those constraints, right? The corners are those constraints. It's, um, it's cash flow, capital, borrowing capacity. Like they're the things that people need to navigate in order to continue to wind their way around the track. Now, here is the, the fundamental difference in the current environment versus like the previous environment over the last couple of years is, as I mentioned, cash flow rates. Right? And rates have been the, the greatest dictator of that capacity to derive cash flow from an asset. Now, rents are rising at record rates and nothing is going to change that because there is no fundamental structural shift happening in, in the property in the property landscape that is going to address the rental crisis. It's only getting worse. And what's funny about that is that um, renters believe that landlords are the root of all evil because they are the, they are the cause of the rental crisis, but it's actually the opposite. It's homeowners. It's the fact that more homeowners have bought properties in the last couple of years and there's less rental stock on the market, which is driving actually a greater rental crisis. That's actually the fundamental reason. But there's no more properties getting built. Like That's an issue. But if, if I told you that you couldn't get cash flow anymore, what would you do? If your goal was like, I want to get cash flow from property, and I said, well, that's cool, you can't, like you just can't, what would you do? Would you, would you just quit? Would you give up? Or would you try and take a different approach? Now, I'll expand on that a little bit because we, um, you know, as an organization, we have long purported the value of getting high growth and high cash flow assets. And we've been able to do that systematically for a number of years. Now, right now, it kind of doesn't matter what your yield looks like. There's a very good chance that based on your loan structure, you're still going to not end up with net positive cash flow. Now, we actually took, we actually took a list of the top you know, few hundred um, yielding suburbs in the country. We took the suburbs and we ranked them by highest yield to lowest yield. There's a few thousand in a list. And we went from the top down to see if we could find any higher yielding markets that would be good to invest in so that we could help our clients to get more cash flow. And you know what we found? We were already in the highest yielding suburbs that were actually investable because there were some higher yielding suburbs, but they were like, middle of outback Northern Territory somewhere, which is not, not investable suburbs. So it's like, okay, well, if we're already in the highest yielding investable suburbs in the country, and many of our clients are still not getting cash flow right now, then what does that tell you? Does that tell you that it might be a fool's errand to chase cash flow in the current environment? Does that tell you that you might need to change your approach or change your perspective on what a success metric looks like in your in your property portfolio? And what I find really interesting about this is I know that there are property professionals out there or property organizations out there who have long purported the benefits of negative cash flow, buying in blue chip areas with low yields. Um, and because of uh, the consumer sentiment backlash of people saying, oh, no, I'm scared now because interest rates are going up. They have now shifted their approach to talk about things like, let's go get cash flow, except they're going to Brisbane to get 4% yields and stuff and trying to purport that that is going to be cash flow positive. I can fundamentally tell you that there is no fact behind that. You can say that it's going to be cash flow positive if you don't, if you don't factor in you know, loan costs and uh, operating expenses, but there's not going to be any cash flow there. And so what's happening is more and more people, and we talk, and Grant, you touched on it earlier about like the masses and going against the masses, and we can kind of go into that because what's happening is people have gotten scared and they're going, oh, we need to go for cash flow, except they just might not be able to get it, which says to me that they're all chasing something that doesn't exist. They're chasing fool's gold. So what can the astute investor do? What can the intelligent investor do? The intelligent investor can say, well, what is my situation? How can I change my approach and my success metrics? Or specifically, how do I need to think about what types of asset, assets might contribute best to my current portfolio? And to give some 
depth to that, what that could look like, right, is if you actually look at your situation, you might want cash flow. We all want cash flow, right? You might say, I want cash flow. But actually, if you can understand that the current environment is probably transient because the moment you buy a property, you lock in the price, rents are going to continue to rise, interest rates are probably going to come down, the current moment will not last. And if you have a sufficient amount of income, cash flow, because cash flow is derived from both your portfolio and your and your income, right? It's your personal cash flow. So if you have enough cash flow in the in the ecosystem of you and enough capital that you could continue forward, even without deriving cash flow from the asset, could you then change the perspective and say, well, would it be okay if I targeted lower yielding assets that might give me a better opportunity to get more capital growth? Because that's gonna that's gonna help me later on with the with the access to capital side of the equation, because I'm gonna build up a, a bigger capital base. Now you might also say, well I've got, geez, I bought properties in a trust and I thought they were going to be cash flow positive and now they're cash flow negative. And just just for clarity, anytime you mention trust, you've got to say this is not financial advice. So go get advice. Don't, this is not legal. The end of things. Thanks, Charlie's Chris. disclaimer at the start of the episode. Right. But just for context, <laughs> if, if we you, mention if you trust, do have- it means you should not trust us. Yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. If you say trust, that's to, that's a reminder. Don't yeah, trust yeah. us on trusts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. But if you've got a trust and um, it's cash flow negative, then you're not able to offset the, the, the losses in your personal name. So you get no tax benefits on it. So your tax, so your losses are siloed in, in the trust. That can be bad. Could you? Could you, and this is just a hypothetical, I'm not giving investment advice here, but I'm just posing a way to think differently in this context. Could you buy a property for the purposes of being an Airbnb property that could potentially have higher cash flow, which could offset the cash flow negativity in your trust, which would then give you advantageous aspects of your borrowing capabilities as well. And so you get to then think a little laterally. You get to think, okay, well, what could I do? Should I actually top grade my portfolio? Maybe I've got three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten properties in my portfolio. Could I top grade them, work out the top uh, the best 70% in my portfolio and drop the bottom 30% or 10% in your portfolio so that you can so that you can open up your borrowing capacity, increase your access to capital, um, free up you know free up some of that debt capability, all of that kind of stuff and allow you to then make strategically different investments. And so it is this moment in time where the capability to think contrary to the general sentiment and general and general populace is the thing that is going to allow people to navigate navigate those um, the bendy section of the track. It was funny, when I pulled up my racehorse when I was going down the straight last year, I'm like, woo! And I'm like, I've never seen this before. How do I play this? It was like being on a basketball court where like the other teams come with a completely different offense. And I'm like, wait, I've only got one defense. Uh... Man up! <laughs> just jump on a man. I got no idea how to play this. Just man well, I'm more impressed. Your analogy's gone from you're on a racehorse to now like you're this? on a basketball court. This is, this is <laughs> That's great. not how analogies I'm, work, right? No, no, no. I get, I, I'm, I get two analogies in episode, Charlie. Well, analogies used you know, the analogies work seventy percent of the time, every time, right? Same with statistics. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, anyway, my whole point was that I'm like, I, I just don't know how to play against this. And mm. funnily enough, Goose, every single thing that you just mentioned is exactly what I went. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to find the best, highest cash flow properties. And I'm like, wait, those numbers don't work. And I'm like, that's it, Charlie. Unit blocks, multifamily, let's go. Let's go. Let's put more families on this place so that I can get the cash flow in it. And I'm like, wait, the borrowing sucks with these. <laughs> I'm like, the, the lending environment just is not what it used to be. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what am I going to do here? Bigger deposits was the next one. Yeah, and it was like, oh, Sarah, man, we'll yeah. start leaving 35, 40%, 40% deposits. We can, we'll go into this realm. Because I'm like, I'll just, yeah, I'll cash up mm-hmm. these babies. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm pushing more thinking that more is just a better outcome. And I'm like, no, the game has fundamentally just changed. 
And so this to was, our credit, I will say I am quite liking we're at least attempting and trying things right. Uh, we may have been pulled up, but at least we're trying to work out how to turn a corner. But then, and, and that that is that point, is a like really it was, sorry, go. It, you can so to that point, like the hardest thing off, was Grant. trying to figure. It was trying to guess off. We brought him on here to talk, and you just like I, no, 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 my story. I right, get continue, one Grant, monologue continue. per episode, and this is it. I've chosen <laughs> this time to have a monologue. All right, everyone, take a second. Here is Grant's moment. Give him his give him his soapbox. Right, wait, 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 wait. It better be good. No we're pressure, ready. but if this yeah, sucks, like <laughs> So what were you saying, Goose? <laughs> <laughs> well what I was what I was what I was about to say um was that um I was gonna agree with Charlie that at, that actually is the right perspective, right? So to your point, uh Grant, it's like we thought the same thing. We were like, okay, interest rates are going up. Let's just go find high yielding stuff. Let's just find ways to go and get more cash flow. We thought the same thing. Um, and so, okay. Now, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, like I know everything, right? But our ability to just continuously ask how is the thing that kind of makes a difference. And that, to your point, Charlie, that's exactly what you, you said you were doing. It wasn't, it was like, a, okay, should we try higher deposits? Okay, does that work? Hmm. Should we try unit blocks? Hmm, does that work? Okay, should we? And so, it's the ability to not ask, well, it's different or, or say it's different. Therefore, I'm just going to stop. It's the it's the it's the mental liquidity to say this is different. Okay, well, what is what needs to change about the approach? Like I was walking along a nice gravel track, and now I'm walking through snow. Do I need to like lift my legs higher? Do I need to do? And so it's that it's literally that process of trying to derive the how, not the if, that defines the success. And and that that was my exact point because I was I was looking at like my immediate goal was cash flow. And I'm like, I want 120 cash flow per year. And like, that's it. Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm like, what are the tactics that will just allow me to get there? And so to the point, mm. like I just threw every tactic. I'm like, da, da, da. And I'm like, wait, is that even the goal that I should be pushing for based on the current environment? Maybe that was the best goal as I was barreling down this straight. And I'm like, that seems logical because opportunities were there. Everything seemed to mm. align to that. And it's like, that's still where I want to get to. But everything else has changed. Like I just, yep. I need to get there a completely different way. And the second that I had that shift, and uh, a good old Howard Marks and the sea change memo that came out Q four twenty twenty two was awesome to, for me. Just going, wow, hang on, things just have changed. I need to think about this differently. Like there are a thousand mm-hmm. ways to get to the same outcome. I'm just going for one. What are the other nine hundred ninety nine? And where where do I need to look at them from? It's also about considering your time horizon as well, right? It's all about considering your time horizon. That was a because, big one. Yeah, because if you're saying, like, if you're making decisions based on what am I doing to set up my portfolio, my success over the next three, five, ten years, that's very different to saying what success metric am I going to judge myself on in the next two weeks, three months, six months. It's very, very different, right? And so... Understanding that environments change and anyone who says the environment is not going to change just needs to take a look backwards. You don't even need to look forwards and say that, the oh, how do you know the environment's going to change? It's like, just look backwards and you'll see how much it has changed and it continues to change and therefore it is likely to continue to change. And so the likelihood is that um, rents are going to continue to rise and that rates will probably come down a little bit and like we'll find some degree of normality and, and equilibrium again. And so if you can understand that this moment will pass and a moment in this context could be a year, 
right? Could be two years. I mean, who cares if you're playing a if you're playing a big enough game? Who really cares? Then you can actually go well. Maybe now is not the time to chase cash flow. And I said this, I was saying this back at the start of last year. I said the biggest mistake that people are going to make is they're going to compromise their overarching strategy purely in the, in, uh, the, in the pursuit of high yields and cash flow. Because you can actually, if that is the single thing on which you are basing the success of your asset selection is the yield, then you're fundamentally not taking a, a holistic view on your portfolio, right? Unless you're in a very advanced stage of your portfolio and you've got a huge amount of liquidity and you literally don't need any more capital appreciation and, and you're literally just going about all the only thing that matters. I don't even care if the property prices go down. I just want the yields. But for most people, they're not in that stage. And so you might then be able to take a worldview that says, okay, well, if it is unlikely that I'm going to be able to get cash flow in the current environment, how much negative cash flow could I support? That's an interesting question. It's a question a lot of people don't necessarily ask themselves. And then you might say, well, well I can, a, I can it's afford- It's a question we've been pondering a lot. We've been yeah. thinking about this a lot, Goose. So can we, can we set this up with the context and I'd love your view on it here? Yeah. All right. If everyone's trying to buy high-yield properties right now, by nature, yeah. that's going to push up the price of the high-yield properties, which in Bingo. nature makes them lower yield. So like Bingo. the idea of- yeah, so it hit me pretty hard. Uh, and then you throw in interest rates on top of this and you get a double squeeze. Mm. So that cash flow evaporates. And we've all witnessed this in recent times. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, what would Uncle Warren do? And he's like, he wants to buy things when things are cheap. So we come up with this consideration that, well, if you didn't need cash flow today, could you mm. potentially outperform over 10 years in changing to an idea of buying growth and then selling them down to pay off your cash flow portfolios or other things that are high yield later on. So you're buying mm-hmm. what no one wants right now and potentially buying it cheaper, which it might actually have a higher yield than other environments. But then over yep. the long term, you've opened up a, a different approach rather than like stacking cash flow to a sell down approach or uh, intrigue here. Would just, that, in your view, potentially for the right person be advantageous? And we have to be very careful on this one. This is not individual financial advice. It's not individual financial advice, but the thesis is sound, right? And but it's it's to it's to it's to the degree to which you pursue that, right? Because is it um, is it appropriate? And it's obviously individually dependent. Is it appropriate to buy a property that has a zero percent yield? It's unrentable, right? Um, would that it might actually make that unmanageable, right? So it's about it's about how far you walk back, and it's about understanding what your capabilities are, like. One individual might have the capability to go $100,000 cash flow negative in a year because they have a significant income or they've got other sources of income. It could be dividends. It could be um, you know, business income. It could be all kinds of things. Maybe they have the capability to go $100,000 negative. So maybe there's an opportunity for them to seek out advantageous buying opportunities that would, that would create a greater total return over time. Um, but if you can't afford $100,000 cash flow negative and you go try and do that kind of thing, then you could actually find yourself in a lot of trouble. And so understanding your own personal capabilities is like a key thing. And it's about the degrees to which you walk back from it, right? If you have no capability to um, go cash flow negative at all, then and, and if you must only buy an asset that is cash flow neutral or positive, they still do exist. It's not that they don't exist. They still exist. They're, they're just far less common. Right, and you're not going to get the same amount of cash flow that you, that you once would have, and you might need to push to the edges on a certain on a certain kind of perspective. So, but back to your point, it's what is really interesting is we have 
systematically over the last four years um, identified the markets that have got the best yield potential and also the best growth potential. It's great. Um, and so most of our clients have enjoyed very high uh, yields relative to national averages, you know, typically about 70. Appreciate so you. Guys, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate <laughs> it. I'll so, send you a bottle of wine. It's great. And the thing is, yeah, and the thing is our clients are still getting those yields by and large. You know, we've pushed it down a little bit, you know, into the fives a little bit. But like realistically, they're still getting decent yields. They're just not getting the cash flow. But what's really interesting is more and more people are now on the hunt for yield, which pushes more people to want to invest in those locations, which pushes up the growth more in those locations. And it becomes a self-fulfilling growth prophecy, which is really, really interesting, right? And so so then the counter-cyclical or counter-intuitive play you know, because we, we looked at all of our um, – again, we've got a process for identifying the top 1% of suburbs in Australia based on, a, based on growth, to be completely frank. You know, we, it's based on what markets are most likely to grow in the country based on a specific set of criteria that we've developed internally in, in a proprietary method. Then we typically stack rank them by yield because we go, well, we want the most amount of growth and then we want the most amount of yield. But then it's like, okay, well, we're actually maybe only buying in like – a third of the top 1% of um, suburbs in Australia. So we're like, well, what happens if we go and look at like the other two thirds or even just like the next third down um, in that stack ranking process? And we're like, well, those yields are a little lower than we normally go for. But and then if we look at the growth data, the growth data is actually significantly better than even some of the other stuff. So then we're saying, well, okay, well, if we switch the perspective for some clients, not all clients, because again, it's about the individual capability to be able to afford the strategy. That's the whole point. And again, it's not a forever thing, but it's like if we've got some clients who are have got sufficient amounts of liquid capital to be able to afford a different um, pathway, there's actually a significantly greater opportunity to derive a significantly greater ROI by changing the success metric. If the only success metric you have about the property is, is it net cash flow positive on day one or in the first year, then you're go- you're going to be sh- you know you're going to be putting blinkers on to potentially what is going to get you a greater ROI now. A good investor should be thinking about, you know, return on return on invested capital. There's a couple of metrics actually. So cash on cash return is really good if you're um, thinking about does this um, does this stack up on day one from a from a cash flow perspective. Cash on equity is good over time, and then return on invested capital is one that I particularly like because I like to look at the total return capability of an individual asset to see is this better than anywhere else I'd put it. And on a total return basis, return on invested capital, there's great opportunities out there now for people to get significantly further ahead because of the, it's called the uh, flocking pattern of investor behavior and how and what's happening there. So how- that's what we've been doing. We've been flocking. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. My mum asks me, what do you do? And I'm just, I just flock all day. I hope you guys are. But it's true. Like, you, you, can, you can see. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was good. But you, but you see it playing out in the rental markets right now. Like, you, like, like the, the flocking behavior that's, that's playing out in the Sydney rental market is really, really interesting, right? And so, so it's, yeah. I, it was funny. Everything that you have just walked through is basically my last six months. And I'll, I'll, I'll share to you, and again, this is not financial advice. This is my personal, the way that my mind has thought through this was going, great, okay, well, can't go more cash flow. I'm going to have to go growth, which is exactly what you were saying, Charlie. And then my mind went, nah, fuck that. Like, I'm like, I don't want to put more money in. I don't want to deal with all these things. Mm. And then I'm like, once I came over that knee-jerk reaction (laughs) and went, no, well, how do you solve it? The first thing that my mind actually connected to was like my me paying superannuation. I'm like, essentially... I'm allocating 10% or what is it, 10, 11%, whatever it is, of my monthly cash flow for future investments. 
and growth that I'm not getting any cash flow from. And I'm like, so I've already carved that out of whatever I make every single month. And I'm like, it's no different here. I'm like, this is just another five or another 10%. And I get to adjust that based on my personal risk profile. I would even say it is different. You can sell a property before 60. Totally. Well, I meant from a cash flow perspective. Like, yes, there is so much more liquidity. And yes, I get access to cash and all those kind of things here. But it was that mindset of going, well, I'm already doing this. I'm like, my super already does this for me anyway. This is just me deciding what happens with it. And so I was like, cool, well, super percent this might be 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever. But then Mm. on the other side, I'm like, oh, wow, there is a tactic to, like, I'm already doing this. What other ways could I play with that? And that's where, Charlie, you were talking about, well, just bigger deposits. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I've got equity in other properties that are super cash flow positive, like fantastically cash flow positive. I'm like, they don't need to be so cash flow positive. I'm like, I could just totally like refinance, take out some money and go put them in Mm -hmm. some offset. I'm like, oh, wait, hang on. And the second that those two, which were the first two that kind of snowballed, and then obviously the third one, which was the bigger deposits, I'm like oh, this is a game I can win. And then, holy smokes, the tactics and the ability for me to go, no, I'm on. This is it. This is just the new opportunity, which is this is how I'm going to turn around this corner and and wait for the next trade. The second my mind went through that, it was just game over. It was. And so is there, and I'm not looking for any financial advice, I'm curious, is there any other ways that people are kind of playing this from a growth perspective of like, oh, wait, wait, that's all you need to overcome from a mental roadblock perspective in order for Mm. you to go, There's other things. There's other ways to approach this. There are other ways to approach it. Um, From a growth perspective, you know, like really it comes down to like location. Location will give you 80% of your return when it comes to growth, right? But if from the mindset piece, I think that's the biggest thing that people need to overcome because if, um, you know, if you can spend $5,000, like let's say negative cash flow, but get $50,000 in growth, is that a good idea to spend five grand and get 50, get 50 grand? Okay, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, but it challenges my belief system groups. Completely. It's like, do you know how yeah. hard I find it to have to, right, I'm going to book a meeting with Bianca and I'm going to go in there and even though I've been for years telling her cash flow is the most important thing, <laughs> and I'm like, let's get tattoos so we don't forget. I'm going, to, I'm going to go in there and say, hey, darling, I'm going to tell you exactly why we need to lose some money every year on the long term here. Trust me. But it's the psychology of it that is the most dif- – the mental gymnastics of that is the challenging part. Yes, but it comes down to like cash flow still is the most important thing on the macro um, time horizon, right? So if your goal is cash flow this year, then okay, well, then, then you're going to have to do some things to specifically get the outcome of cash flow. But if your goal is cash flow in five years or 10 years, then you get to actually think a little differently around like what are the building blocks that are going to create that capability, right? And so, you know, just like starting a new venture or I mean, like quite frankly, investing in most shares, you invest a bunch of capital and you get growth and, you know, like it's, so it's really just about changing. It is about changing the perspective. And I think the timeline piece really matters the most because if you were standing at the start of 2023 and you're like, well, if I can't get cash flow, I'm not going to invest. I'm going to wait until interest rates come down. And let's just say that's 12 months. Let's just say January, let's say like the start of um, 2024, rate to lower, you can get more cash flow. Rents have gone up, you can get more cash flow. Let's say that's the case. Do you think you're going to be better off and in a better position to get more properties and subsequently more cash flow if you'd actually taken the opportunity to invest, carved out a certain amount of your investment capital or investment savings to, to cover the negativity and then gained 
you know, probably 10x on whatever your negative cash flow is going to be. You're then going to be able to deploy that capital more more advantageously in the next on the next straight. <laughs> and you're going to be able to go faster. Going back to the analogy at the start, you know, the capability of the race car, the capability of what your capital allocation, all that kind of stuff is going to be when you go down the straight is going to, is going to define how fast you go. Right now, you get to decide what position you're going to be in once you get out of the corners and get back on the straight. Yeah, that's huge. I'm bringing this one around here, Goose. That analogy, I think, is incredibly powerful. The uh, racetrack analogy, I hope people that are listening to this are able to take to that because it fits so well in my mind of what's going on right now. The second thing is just highlighting how critical the thinking is here. Right, It's the thinking that is the first step. Like Thoughts leads to actions. And I think that if one can master their thinking and understand ideally through this analogy here, I think they're going to be much better suited to working this out. And even further to that, I think it's really important people get around other property investors and expose themselves to new ideas because you can get very limited with even your own thoughts and things you've put in here, which I find particularly powerful. Now, we are going to wrap this one up because we are running long on the end of it here, but such an incredibly powerful conversation. Grant, do you want to round us out? Totally. Man, I could talk about this topic forever. (laughs) So just wanted to say thank you very much to yourself, Goose, for joining us. (laughs) 